Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com. That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com. Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down or call 630-629-1720. Morningstar Books and Gifts, 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, and I'm on retreat right now with the rest of the clergy from the Eparchy of Parma. And it, because we're on retreat, I get a chance to talk with my other brother priest. Because you see, our eparchy, as many Eastern Catholic eparchies are, that's our word for diocese, are usually very far flung. In other words, if they cover large territories. For instance, the Eparchy of Parma, which is like the Diocese of Parma, actually takes in 12 states, it covers the entire Midwest. So my brother priest and I, many of us are kind of far flung apart from each other. Whenever we come together in things like clergy conventions or retreats, it gives us a chance to just talk with each other, kind of compare notes and so on. And just before you tuned in today, Light of the East, I was talking with our good friend here, Father Joe Marquis, and I were doing some priest talk, and we're going to let you in on it. We were talking about how the kind of questions that people come up with whenever they enter our parishes as Byzantine Catholic parishes, especially with our iconography. So once again, we welcome Father Joe Marquis, who is pastor of Sacred Heart Byzantine Catholic Parish in Livonia, Michigan. He's been on our program before, and always great to have him here. It's great to have a chance to talk with him while we're on this retreat here. And Father Joe, you know, you and I were talking mm-hmm. just before we, we came on, on the air here about how people who are not Byzantine Catholic, and sometimes people who are Byzantine Catholic, whenever they enter one of our churches or, or an Orthodox church and they see the iconography, th- th- there's certain questions, common questions that we run into, you and I as pastors, they often ask us. Well, one of the questions I hear very frequently is, why do all these icons always look the same? I mean, what's up with that? That's awfully static. I mean, Jesus is there. He's got his hands. It's very nice. It's up in blessing. He's holding a book. What's up with that? Why does he always look the same? You can't do something. Can he laugh once in a while? Father, what's, what's that all about anyway? That's what they ask. Well, seeing as how iconography is part of my field, uh, art was my field growing up all my life, of course, and then I eventually I developed iconography, apply my abilities to that, because that's, of course, is the need of the church. It's the art of our church, the Eastern churches. And to answer that question, which is a very common question, I get it too, Father Joe, that people mm-hmm. ask, well, why is it so <laughs> the same as that? Why can't you make Jesus like this or like that? Well, what happened basically was when iconography developed, it was basically a kind of a, you might call it a canonized art form. It eventually became, in a sense, canonized. In other words, there was a certain way to do it, a certain way to paint, a process, even a certain lifestyle. You have to have a certain lifestyle, actually, to really be an iconographer. And this was how iconography, or the art of the church, began in both East and West. The Eastern churches decided to, in a sense, kind of 
canonize, or in a certain sense, it's a little bit of a harsh word, but I'll use it anyway for the sake of description, kind of like crystallize a certain style or certain elements of an icon. The Western church sprung from iconography, but it allowed artists to go in different directions, to become more personal. In other words, an artist's particular vision, like artists might say, well, I'm going to depict God this way, or Christ, or the Virgin Mother, and with certain emphasis. Iconography in the East sort of remain, in a sense, in a sense static, but it's actually very dynamic art, but in a sense static in terms of how you could paint and why. And the reason is, is because, think of it this way, say you're reading the Bible or the, or the scripture or the gospel, what is that physically? That's, that's ink, you know, characters made of ink on a piece of paper. And that ink and that paper communicate revelation. Well, the icon does that same thing, only it's not just ink on paper, it's color and line and gold leaf on a board or a canvas or a wall. So basically, you're painting, communicating through the medium of the paint, revelation, which means you can't just do whatever you want. So it's like when you're obeying rules and grammar and so forth, and you're writing, yes, you have exactly. syntax, you can't just use jive. Right. For example... The New Testament, we can have a translation, and they all fall short, let's face it, from the original Greek. They do the best they can. The scholars do the best they can, racking their brains over certain uh, words and so forth. But if you ever read a paraphrased gospel, mm -hmm. yes. it is mind-numbing. If you read the account, Hail, O Holly, favorite daughter. And then the paraphrased edition, I actually saw this, Father Tom. <laughs> Hi, Mary. <laughs> okay, uh, so yes. you can say, boy... You know, that first one's awfully rigid. Yes. You know, Halo, highly favored. I like the other one. Hi, Mary. Hey, how's it going? Hey, I'm Gabe. You know, I'm from the big clouds up in the heavens. Well, that's all very nice, but that's not what he said. Right. Or like the laughing Jesus. Did he laugh? Probably. Did the gospel say that? No. It's like all of a sudden Jesus is walking with Peter and he doubled over laughing. Well, you don't write that in a gospel. He didn't double over laughing. We're not saying he didn't laugh. It's just that it wasn't entered in the gospel. So it's the same thing with icons. We don't have the laughing Jesus, not because we don't believe Jesus laughed, but because of Father Tom, and, and Father Tom is a gifted iconographer, and he knows the, the canons. Icons are on a level with sacred scripture because we believe if you burned all the written words of the gospels, we'd still have the icons. We'd have the save, uh, saving truths of salvation in these holy images. So really, we're affirming what's already in the written gospel. So if right. Jesus didn't laugh in the gospels, I'm not saying he didn't. Right. I'm sure the mother of God laughed. I'm sure they all had a laugh when he showed them the, the apostles that were going to follow him after he ascended <laughs> in glory. They probably all doubled over. But it's not in the gospels. So if it's not there, you don't put it in there. Hence, canons and sacred scriptures. So uh, with uh, the uh, icons, pardon me. So it's not being rigid. It's being faithful. Absolutely. In fact, G.K. Chesterton ends his book, Orthodoxy, with maybe, Father Joe, the reason why we don't depict God's mirth. Because he said we probably, that's one thing that God spared us about himself, probably because we couldn't handle it. Well, that's probably true. <laughs> Can you imagine if God did laugh? I think all the stars would fall out of the sky. <laughs> I'd probably decompose in the basic elements, you know, hydrogen pouring out of my ears, iron rolling on the floor. But there's a, there's a serious point to what you're saying here, Father, in terms of iconography, uh, that the canons are to be obeyed for a specific reason. For example, why isn't, I hear this once in a while, why don't they show Jesus in profile? 
Right. I Re- see it in the West, like Giotto, I see it. Why don't do that in icons, Father? The reason is, is because iconography, first of all, it kind of knocks out, eliminates that, what we call the third dimension. Now, Western art developed the third dimension in absolutely ingenious ways, where you look at a, you're looking at a flat piece of canvas or wall. It looks like this figure's jumping out at you, or you can reach out and touch it. It was an incredibly ingenious uh, piece of artistic craftsmanship that the West developed, and, and again, for good reasons, to communicate the gospel. In the East, though, we say, well, we're looking at icons as though they're pointing to the eschaton, the next life. So we take out that third dimension to kind of give a certain sense of dimensionlessness, in a sense. In other words, there is no dimension in, in heaven as we see it here. It's, it's like e- eternal. Also, the reason is, too, is because when a figure is very frontal, for instance, if someone were to look you in the eye, come right at, stand right in front of you, look right at you, it gets your attention. That's true. Oh, boy, it makes you almost feel uneasy. Like, well, what's this? He's looking right at me. Well, that's precisely what iconography wants to do. It wants to engage. It wants to lock your gaze into it because, because your gaze now is going to be looking into the eschaton. And at the same time, as we said earlier in our conversation, Father Joe, it's also a mirror. We're seeing in that icon the, the truth about ourselves as human beings, that we are in the image and likeness of God. As you said before, that we irradiate we reflect off of ourselves God's light that is shining upon us. And so when, when the icons look straight at you very frontally, they really engage you and draw you in. They sort of catch your attention and draw you into their reality. And also anyone who's committed to the truth hears his voice. And as you know, to avert a gaze means what? This duplicitous dimension yeah. there. The evil one is always shown in profile. You see exceptions of People who are not saints, for example, in the nativity scene, the babe being washed and the woman's in profile because mm-hmm. she's not a saint, she's a figure in the scene. Right. You look at the, the mystical supper, who's in profile? Judas. Why? The devil entered into him. Right. So the devil is always shown in profile because he's a liar and he averts the gaze. And Christ, who is truth, and we're to be open to the truth if mm-hmm. we gaze at a holy image, then we become changed. We become kinetic icons of Christ. So that's really important as well. Father, what about this Pantocrator? Some people say, well, what's, what's with that? I go into church. Mm-hmm. To, why can't they have an image of you know, St. Nicholas or St. Blaze or St. anybody? How about a lady of somewhere? I, you know, it's always the same Jesus. What's that all about? <laughs> what's up with that, Father? Well, the icon you mentioned is called Christ Pantocrator. Now, that's a Greek word, which means all-powerful ruler. And when you enter an Eastern Catholic Church or an Eastern Orthodox Church, many of them, you will find if they're painted fully and and properly, according to the canons you say, Father, you'll walk in and the largest looming figure will be above you in usually what is the dome of the church or the ceiling. And this large looming figure is supposed to be like that. It's supposed to, in a sense, almost frighten you, but in a good way. In other words, it's it's the awesomeness of God. God, Christ, who is the all-powerful ruler, where everything is summed up in him in the, in the end of time, is the Alpha and Omega that we read about in the book of Revelations. And so it is. he's the most prominent figure there in, in the church, and so he's the largest icon, a very looming, consuming, awesome kind of icon. And so since the church, the architectural church, is conveying this theology of heaven having come down to earth, when we look up in the ceiling of the, of the church, we're seeing this incredible, looming, powerful figure of Christ, all the all-powerful ruler. When we return, you're going to be able to eavesdrop a little bit more on a conversation between us two priests, Father Joe Marquis of Sacred Heart Parish in Livonia, Michigan, and also myself, Father Thomas Loya, here on Light of the East. 
Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Can you imagine living a life without love, marriage, intimacy, sex, having children, or friendship? Of course not. I am Father Thomas Loya with a Theology of the Body moment for the Tabor Life Institute. Why do we desire these things so much? It is because God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a union and communion of persons who united Himself with us in what the Scripture describes as a mystical marriage, a fruitful self-giving. Scripture also says that we are made in God's image and likeness, so we too are called to become a union and communion of persons in fruitful self-giving. This is why we cannot imagine living without marriage, intimacy, sex, having children, and friendship. Pope John Paul II said in his Theology of the Body that these are the very things that make us most like God. To find out more about the Theology of the Body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East. Once again, we're allowing you to eavesdrop on a conversation between two priests. In other words, some priest talk here because I'm on retreat currently on location here at St. Mary the Lake Seminary in the Retreat Center in Mundelein, Illinois. And, of course, I'm here with a lot of our brother priests and gives me a chance to talk with them. One of them, of course, is Father Joe Marquis from Sacred Heart Parish in Livonia, Michigan. He's been on a program before. We really enjoy having him. And Father and I were just talking before all of you came into eavesdrop about uh, things that we encounter in our parishes, especially when people walk in and they ask about icons. And Father Joe, you were, there was a whole lot of other questions that, that people hit us with and you know, when they walk into our churches. One, one comment, Father, I hear very frequently from visitors concerning the Holy Mother of God. She has her hands extended in the Oran's position. Yes. Why does Jesus look like he's 12? <laughs> he's supposed to be a baby. Yes. What's going on there, Father? Yes, it's interesting. You'll notice whenever Christ is depicted with the Virgin Mary, especially as, as a child, seeming like a child, and the archon you're talking about is we're looking into the Virgin Mary's as if we're looking into her heart or her womb. And naturally, if a child is in a womb, he has to be young. At the same time, when you look at this figure, that it's painted as though he were older. And this is very common. You'll see this in the icon of the nativity as well. Anytime the Virgin Mary is with the Christ child, you'll always notice, especially his face, his head, not so much his body, to a certain extent his body, but especially his face, seems like an older person, like a, a, a teenager or an adult. And the reason is, and again, you always have to remember that iconography is always kind of ushering our gaze forward and into the ultimate purpose of what it is we're seeing or that event. What is the ultimate purpose, the ultimate destiny, you know, the why behind Christ being here, being in the arms of the Virgin Mary? It's so that he could become not just a baby, but he came, yes, he started out as a baby, but he comes so that he will be the grown man Messiah, the one that will die and rise and save us. And so iconography always wants to sort of 
kind of usher us, kind of nudge us very quickly to the ultimate goal or the theological meaning of this event or the persons in the icon. So already we're getting a premonition. Our, our gaze is already, okay, okay, yeah, he's a baby, he's the Christ child, isn't that beautiful? But we just don't linger in the cuteness and the sentimentality. It right away wants us to move on to the purpose, the real why behind this Christ child, and that is that he would become a man. So there's like a, a hint of foreshadowing already in the icon, the way they portray him. So the sense of his eternal wisdom, even though yes, symbolically exactly. he's present, it looks like he's 12, but it's conveying a sense of his wisdom, eternal wisdom at the earliest moments yes. in his mother's womb. The eternal word of God was there present. And remember from the scriptures when Christ was preaching in the temple, in the synagogue, he was he was a very young boy like that, at that, you know, that's, that similar age, and yet they were amazed at how he could have this kind of wisdom at this young age. Now the platitera means... Platitera means, oh, that's one of my that's, favorites. That's the image of the Oran's position, where hands are extended, Father. Yes, extended. And uh, Christ is within her womb. And sometimes the, the, the rendition is that her arms are even further outstretched. They're extended, but they're kind of further outstretched. So she's really opening wide to, to draw us in and really exposing Christ from her heart or her womb or center. And the platitera means uh, more, in a sense, it, it, to translate it, it means like more spacious than the heavens. And this is what we say. We say that he whom not even the universe could contain was contained within the womb of a virgin making her now more spacious than the heavens, which is really the, what platitera means. And once again, it's a Greek word. And this icon is often seen in this back wall, the sanctuary, you know, behind the altar, above the altar of many Eastern churches, both, both Catholic and Orthodox. And the reason is, is because as we're looking at the altar, the Holy of Holies, the Mother of God, the Virgin Mary, becomes the symbol of that, the Holy of Holies, because in the Holy of Holies was the presence of Christ. She is hovering, in this icon, she's hovering over the tabernacle, which in Eastern churches, we keep our tabernacles with the Eucharist in it. We keep it on our altar, on the main altar, on the altar of sacrifice. And so we have a tabernacle on the altar, but hovering above is this icon of the mystical tabernacle, you know, the human tabernacle of the mother of God. Because like the tabernacle, which is also foreshadowed in the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant and the Old Testament temple, she too had God within her. And so she too becomes then this mystical tabernacle. And so there she is depicted as the second largest icon, usually in Eastern churches. We talk about the Pantocrat yes. or the ceiling. Mm -hmm. Iconography in Eastern churches generally goes by, the order of importance goes by the size. <laughs> so in other words, the most important, course, of course, is Christ, God. There he is in, in the looming above the dome. The second largest icon, the second most prominent one, is the magnificent icon of the Platitera, which is behind the altar. And then we uh, hear this very often, too. What's with the three stars? Why doesn't another female saint have three stars, like her mother, St. Anne, for example? What's going on there, Father? The three stars that are always on the Mother of God depict the fact that she remained a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. And of course, no one else can claim that, so no one else gets the three stars. We oftentimes find depictions of the Virgin Mary, especially in Western art, where she's got all kinds of stars on her. But in the Eastern Church, the Eastern iconography, it puts just three specific stars, one on each shoulder and one on her forehead. You know, on, 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 of course, it's on her outer, outer garments. And so that reminds us that she remained a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. See, always, always, always in iconography, everything is purposeful because it's always pointing to a theological significance. It's always teaching us. It's telling us about that figure, the significance of that figure or that event, you know, the ultimate why behind it. And then, of course, the icon screen, everyone may think about our Eastern tradition, 
they think about icon screen. What's the significance of that? I know in the West, uh, they uh, had commuter rails. Yes. Is that comparable? Yes, absolutely. No, most of our listeners are probably too young to remember the communion rails in, <laughs> in the Roman Catholic churches. I remember them. Uh, they separated the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary, from the nave. And, and only the ordained ministers, and of course the altar servers, who were extensions of the ordained ministers, could go past that communion rail. No, the lay people did not go up there to the, to the sanctuary at that time. Same is true for us, only we have, imagine the, sometimes I jokingly say, uh, take a communion rail, add water to it, and watch it grow <laughs> to the ceiling. Historically, <laughs> that's what happened, wasn't it? They yeah. found a neat place to place icons. Yeah, exactly. Low-bearing yeah. rail, and all of a sudden became a wall. It became a wall, again, and it became more elaborate, especially in the Slavic tradition, a very, very decorative wall. And oftentimes, I'm sure you hear this, Father, all the time. Mm-hmm. I hear that people come into our church and they say, why is that wall up there? I can't see the priest. I say, you can't see me? Good. You shouldn't have to see me. In fact, I don't want you staring at me. Got a bald spot in the back of my head. <laughs> so I'm glad the icon screen is there. Yeah. But yes, it is there so that you can't see because if that's heaven back there, the Holy of Holies, we're not there yet. And it does want to tease you. It wants to remind you you're not in heaven yet. And if that's the reason we don't have statuary, right? Because that's three-dimensional. Right. And that would suggest a realized eschatology. Exactly. It's so the, two, two dimensions is evocatory. It makes us long for heaven. Right, exactly. At the same time, this is very significant and very characteristic of the Eastern soul. That icon screen that hides or prevents us from entering, at the same time, it reveals. Because that wall, that barrier... That thing that keeps us from seeing into the sanctuary at the same time has icons on it as though those figures from heaven are coming out towards us. So we have this magnificent kind of paradox, this complementarity, this this tension of, of seemingly opposites. And if you notice in the Eastern liturgy, that's where the liturgy, the rhythm liturgy kind of revolves around that because we, we process in and out of that, the clergy do, during certain times of the liturgy. So in a sense, that, that icon screen is very symbolic. Very, very significant. It kind of captures the whole soul of the liturgy, which is this rhythm of things hidden and things revealed all at the same time. And then the doors, they remind us, a little child would know that looks like the gates of heaven. Yes. And they can figure that out very beautifully. And of course, as you know, Father, when the priest comes down with the Eucharist, the by and blood of Christ, heaven and earth meet. Yes. And they receive, as one of the fathers say, fire. Yes. And so we become living icons of Christ irradiating the light of Christ, mm-hmm. but Christ within us shines forth. Yes. If we had the eyes of the angels, uh, we would fall down on our faces realizing the dignity mm-hmm. that we each have. Yes. So a lot of times people, they, they, they occupy a pew and they, they think, well, you know, I'm showing up, I'm doing what I should. Mm-hmm. You know, Mary had a little lamb and never became a sheep. She took it to a Byzantine Catholic mass that died from lack of sleep, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're not paying attention. They're not attentive. How many times do we say, wisdom, be attentive, be attentive to the sights, the smells, the tastes? Yes. So we're maximalists, aren't we, Father, yes. in our tradition? Absolutely. In fact, when we approach for Holy Communion, the priest or the deacon says to the people, this is their signal to approach, he says, approach with the fear of God and with faith. Now, we don't mean that we're psychologically afraid of right. God. It means that what you're about to approach is so awesome. You have to come to it with a certain, an incredible reverential awe. We come with full compunction, full penthos, full repentance. No, almost We almost grovel up to that Eucharist. And so when we leave the church, ideally we should be conscious of the fact that we're living icons of Jesus Christ yes. in whom we find a true dignity. In fact, speak about the, speaking about the tabernacle, we receive the Eucharist and we become ourselves especially in those few moments after receiving Eucharist, literally 
physical living tabernacles of God. Father, if there's another book uh, that you could recommend on iconography, what would you recommend? There's a number of bo- good books coming out all the time. The, probably the classic is the, the Meaning of Icons by Uspensky and Lasky. Mm-hmm. Well, Father Joe, it's been fun talking with you, My and pleasure, we'll be talking Father. more. And I'm glad all of you out there listening had a chance to eavesdrop on us a little bit. This is what priests talk about all the time. And I want to thank you again. Father Joe Marquis, our guest today from Sacred Heart Byzantine Catholic Church in Livonia, Michigan. Thank all of you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya here on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, ByzantineCatholic.com where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the light of the east, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. CRI, Catholic Radio International.com.